Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by the AISC Design Guide Series. Design Guide 30, Sound Insulation and Noise Control in Steel Buildings, is available now. Visit AISC.org slash design guides to see what's new and download a free copy today. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Engineering and Research Department at AISC. My guest today is Ronald D. Zanian, professor at Bucknell University. Ron received his Bachelor's of Science in Civil Engineering, his Master's in Engineering, and his Ph.D. degrees from Cornell University. In addition to authoring papers on the design and analysis of steel structures, Dr. Zamian is co-author of the textbook Matrix Structural Analysis and the editor for the sixth edition of the Guide to Stability Design Criteria for Metal Structures. He is currently the treasurer and was the former chair of the Structural Stability Research Council. Ron is a member of AISC's Committee on Specifications, chairs AISC's Task Committee 10 on Frame Stability, and was the former chair of AISC's Task Group on Inelastic Analysis and Design. He also serves on the AISI Specification Committee and is active with the Steel Joyce Institute. Dr. Zamian was awarded the ASCE Norman Medal in 1994 for his paper on employing advanced methods of inelastic analysis in the limit states design of steel structures. He has also received the AISC Special Achievement Award and the ASCE Short Ridge Hardesty Award for his contributions to the profession related to the stability analysis and design of metal structures. Welcome, Ron. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule this week to talk to me. Well, thanks, Margaret. Uh, Yeah, it's great to be here. I look forward to your questions. Okay, so we'll just jump right in and we'll start with your college career. You received your bachelor's, master's, and PhD all in civil and environmental engineering from Cornell. Why did you decide to go there and why did you stay there throughout your college career? Well, I was a nerdy runner in high school and had some success in track and cross country. So what initially got to me to Cornell was actually I was recruited to go there for the track team. Oh, okay. And I, and I did run as an undergraduate uh, on, on the teams. But once I got there as an undergraduate, uh, I had a really awesome engineering uh, co-op experience. And uh, in that experience, we uh, were responsible for designing geodesic aluminum domes. Oh. And so it was kind of twofold in which you had to look at structural geometries that weren't the nice planar frame examples that your faculty had been doing on the boards, but you were forced to think in 3D. And the second was we had all our steel courses and all of that, but this was aluminum, so you really needed to understand what the steel folks were after, not the specific equations and modeling the behavior so you could swing it over and design it out of aluminum. Mm -hmm. So that really uh, fueled my interest in structural engineering. And so I continued right on uh, after my undergraduate and got my uh, professional degree, my Master of Engineering from Cornell. Um, And then went off and worked in industry for a few years and was eventually given the opportunity to uh, return to Cornell for my PhD and that's how it went down. So why did you go into the civil engineering field? What was the attraction to that? You know, like any high school kid, you're, you're wandering around, you have no idea what to do. But I was very fortunate in that my parents um, uh, took my combined interests in math, and I was on the math team, I really enjoyed that <laughs> nerdy stuff, uh, in physics. Uh, but also, I had a lot of interest in architecture. 
So at one point, I was thinking, oh, I'll go into architecture. It's and, funny how uh, a lot of structural engineers think they're going to go into architecture. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I have to say, my, uh, my mom and dad may be somewhat conservative. Uh, my dad was an electrical engineer, may have started looking at the architecture programs and finding that they were in fine arts schools, yeah. and maybe be a concern that I'd leave architecture and just go and be an artist. <laughs> and, uh, but eventually what they found, and this was all before the internet and being able to Google and everything, it was literally textbook searches that they had done, um, they found structural engineering was this combination of math, physics, and architecture. And they found it within the subdiscipline of civil engineering, and off I went in that direction and I you know I'm always grateful for them because I just find just the sheer scale of civil engineering projects just unbelievable yeah so and once you got started then it just oh yeah then I was hooked you were hooked I was hooked yeah. so I've, I understand that your mentor at Cornell was the legendary Bill McGuire so what did you learn from him well first I, I would hope that most of the people in your audience knew who Bill McGuire was, but uh, for those that, that don't, uh, Bill uh, was a faculty member up at Cornell. He was always came at it as a practicing structural engineer, but uh, in the mid-1960s, Bill took a sabbatical and he went out and he pulled together everything and anything to do with steel structures and he published a book called Steel Structures and it mm -hmm. was a giant green tome of just amazing information. And from there, it became apparent that this person really knew his stuff, and, and then his career would go from there, and he'd become very active with AIC. To get specifically to your question, as I would always know him, Professor McGuire had a significant influence on my professional career. He was my professor, my PhD advisor. Uh, we would uh, co-author both textbooks and software, uh, and eventually, as he got older, a, a great friend. Um, you asked what I learned most from him. Um, I mean, <laughs> the guy was basically a walking textbook, uh, <laughs> a walking encyclopedia of steel <laughs> structures. So uh, I learned uh, so many things from him. But probably the most important thing that I learned from him was that a real understanding of the behavior of structures will lead to safe and efficient designs. And so Bill was always a big advocate even as early as the 1980s, long before AutoCAD or anything, uh, we were using uh, at Cornell some very sophisticated computer graphics programs in, in more advanced methods of structural analysis. And through this, we were able to obtain a real realistic simulation of limit state behavior. We could see things buckling, yielding, crushing, whatever. And again, Bill was turning this around to say, all right, so now you even understand the behavior better. Mm -hmm. And with that knowledge, you'll go on and design safe and efficient structures. Um, so th that was really important. Bill was never about using the computer for auto design or anything like that. It was always about these sophisticated levels to enhance your judgment as you design a structure. Some other things that was really important um, that Bill taught me was just in general in presenting material. You have to be comprehensive, of course, and clear, but Bill was a real tiger about making sure it was presented in a concise fashion. And I think it was somewhat in response, if you actually go through that legendary steel book I was telling you about, uh, it's, it's giant, there's a lot there. And I think he always thought, man, I wish I had said this in a little more concise fashion. <laughs> uh, so when we were later working on the matrix analysis book, uh, I was just blown away at how relentless Bill was in taking a chapter on 
you know, second order analysis, and it's starting at 50 pages, and then wordsmithing and cutting words and, and trying to increase clarity and at the same time making it concise yep. with examples and suddenly it's down to 20 pages. And, and uh, that takes a lot of effort yeah, uh, it to, really to does. go in that direction. And, uh, so but it makes it so much easier for people to understand it. Oh yeah, the payoff, the payoff yeah. is, is huge. The fewer you, words you can use. I think always helps, especially engineers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, Professor McGuire, I mean, many people knew him. He was a, a man of principle and integrity. You know, he served as a meaningful example to me with regard to his dedication, energy, and especially his professionalism. He was a true gentleman, and it was neat uh, to, to get to work with someone like that. Uh, I've always heard wonderful things about him. Yeah, no, it was great. So then you went on to be a professor. Uh, at Bucknell University. You've been there for at least 25 years, is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I joined when I was 18, so oh, really, okay. You know, okay. I'm just barely 40 now. <laughs> <laughs> so that has been the majority of your career, so <clears throat> what drew you to, to want to be in academia? Well, uh, during my graduate school, both during my MEng and my PhD studies, um, I had the opportunity to be a teaching assistant for several courses. And I really enjoyed working with the students, and I never saw it as like teaching them. I always saw it as sort of like learning with them, and mm -hmm. um, so that that was it was really fun. And then, of course, as anyone who takes on some PhD studies, um, your intellectual curiosity grows and grows, especially in that topic that you're studying. And pretty much, you find yourself spending your weekends and evenings and reading and exploring a wide range of engineering topics. So you're really now hooked on a lifestyle that's starting to sound like an academic. I see academia as, as a profession that's just driven by intellectual curiosity. You're constantly looking into something in great detail, and once you've sort of understood it or contributed to it, you just can't wait to share it. Professors don't really separate teaching and research into separate things. I mean, we consider them symbiotic. They're pretty much one feeds off, the other feeds off. So you other. don't have one that you enjoy more over the other. They're, no, it's they the go, same thing. They go hand in hand. Yeah, it's, I really enjoy being a professor. Yeah, and so you know, all that time you spend on research, investigating new ideas, um, you, know, you can't wait to, either, to both publish it and get it into your coursework. They're one and the same. That's interesting. I've never had a professor tell me that. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I wasn't asking the right questions. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm the only one that thinks so. No, no, no. I, I I think there are a lot of people that would agree. So you teach steel design. Mm -hmm. uh, do you teach any other classes? Hopefully, nothing that starts with a C. No, uh, <laughs> nothing that starts with a C. I uh, teach uh, courses in structural analysis and uh, more elementary courses in engineering mechanics and, of course, at the other end, capstone design courses. Unfortunately, Bucknell is only an undergraduate institution, so I don't get to teach oh, okay. graduate courses in structural stability or nonlinear analysis or, or how to design steel structures using advanced analysis. So, oh, yeah, that's what I would have yeah. assumed no. you did that, too, yeah. So, so I have to live in this sort of introductory world, yeah. but that's why it's really nice that over the years I've been able to get involved with organizations like AISC and others in presenting you know, short courses or even uh, twice I've been able to participate in AIC's night school. Night effort. school, so, yes. So it gives me a chance to, to finally go in that direction. And I've also had lots of opportunities uh, to lecture not only in the U.S. but 
uh, you know, around the world and providing a few days of short course here and there. And it's always to the graduate students, so it really inspires me to keep rocking. <laughs> I think my undergraduate courses might push the limits a little bit, too. <laughs> yeah, are they looking at you going, yeah. this is intro to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, I tend to go a little too far, but uh, I think my students enjoy I'm it. I'm sure they're better for it. Well, let's hope so. I was going to ask you what you're currently researching. Um, oh, sure. No, no. Um, we at Bucknell, uh, we are absolutely expected to to develop a scholarly program and scholarship. It's it's almost the same when we are evaluated, where our teaching is evaluated and our research is evaluated at the same scale. So we are expected to publish papers and do research and all of that. The the only thing that's really different between all these great people. And, and uh, that contribute to AIC committee meetings, these university faculty from R1 schools, is that there is no no one telling us you have to bring in so much funding per year. Okay, they want us to be intellectually engaged in our scholarship, and we have to do it. Uh, but there's no hammer over our head to bring in this money. So that that's really nice. The problem is when you don't have money, how do you do anything? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so it's a little <laughs> tricky. Uh, but you have to pick your topics. In the end, what you really do is you're your own postdoc. So mm -hmm. I can't afford to hire a postdoc, but I want to do this work. So that's what I do on, on weekends and evenings is you know, my, my scholarship. What are you working on right now? Well, we have, we being AIC's TC10 on stability, we, we've added a new opportunity to the specification. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. And we've extended the direct analysis method. And so I've been able to, you know, contribute lots of examples on, and, and doing background studies for how this would work and all the nuances that need to be considered. So over the last few months, and my wife will grumble <laughs> about this because uh, I've been hidden away in the basement doing it, um, and, and that is looking at preparing a really comprehensive benchmark problem that really draws out the subtleties of this, of this new approach. And, and this um, is this will be in the 2016 specification. Yeah, this will be in the commentary. Um, so w what we found in the end is you need a pretty sophisticated level of a, of a second order elastic analysis. You've got to be able to pick up twist. Um, not all programs can do that. Many can, but many cannot. So what we uh, needed is a is an example that actually pulled it out and, and got the twist to occur so people could evaluate whether their programs were doing it or not. Right, because you know? a lot of people don't have any idea. Right, they don't. And, and the, uh, we already have a couple of those benchmark problems um, in the commentary to Chapter C. Mm -hmm. And those I had developed or put numbers to for the 2010 commentary. And I, I was pretty brave at the time. I just used Mastan, generated the numbers, and submitted them, and you guys went to print. And then the more I thought about it, gee, you know, I never used any of the commercial programs to see if they would get the same answer. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was a little nerve-wracking. So I, what I would do is I would go to, a, you know, your NACC conference, right? And you have a great trade show there. Mm -hmm. And um, you would have lots of computer software companies. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I would have printed out in my pocket the benchmark <laughs> example, and I would walk up, like, like I was interested in purchasing their product, and I would, and, oh, what? And uh, so I said, could you work an example for me? And they'd say, sure, and they'd start setting up some 
frame they know. I said, no, no, how about this one? And then I would have them run the benchmark problem, and I'd look over their shoulder and see what they actually got for a number, and then I'd look down and see what I had published. I said, okay, good. <laughs> got the so same it, answer. So it all checked so out. So it all checked out, right? <laughs> and it should have. It, that wasn't too complicated. Uh, this new addition in requiring the second-order analysis to also pick up twist, that I so wasn't is, quite as brave. So <laughs> is this a new requirement? in the direct analysis method in 2016? The current direct analysis method is, is, is as it is. If you want to use this extension, this ability to go beyond and, and get there for more odd-shaped structures, you, you are going to have to make sure that your analysis can pick up this, this twisting. So mm -hmm. it's an extension, but not a requirement. If it, the way it currently works, you're fine. If you want to take advantage of this new opportunity, you're going to have to come at it with a, with a little better But it, did you say it's more applicable to odd-shaped structures? Yeah. That's when yeah. it would really come That's into right. play. That's right. So if someone doing a, you know, an ordinary, a typical braced frame or a rigid frame or something like that, everyday kind of math, yeah, no problem. It, it's more the, the tree columns and these really crazy-looking structures. Um, the Arendelle trusses, these type of things that this arches, it, it lends itself a real nice opportunity to how to do that. So um, that's a nice sneak peek of something coming up in the 2016 spec. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, I've been working on extending some work that I had done with the Steel Joyce Institute, and so I've been working with the trust folks in AISI. That's, that's been kind of fun, and looking at uh, unbraced lengths and web compression members. Uh -huh. But I have to say, uh, on these projects and over the past few years, I've been really lucky to not only approach these things as a postdoc, but I've uh, been able to work with some uh, really bright undergraduates. And mm -hmm. um, so these are kids that are going to go on uh, to some of the best graduate schools. And um, so you, you get them for <coughs> a year or a couple semesters, and it's really neat, and then they go off to Cornell or Stanford or Berkeley or something like that. So you, you get them just before, but they, they do some nice contrib contributions. And then in 20 or 30 years, when I'm interviewing them for my podcast, they'll be talking about you as <laughs> mentor, <laughs> Professor Zamian. Yeah, I, well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking about engineering students, mm -hmm. what do you think is the biggest challenge that faces engineering students today as compared to maybe when you were a student? Facebook, right? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> That's their biggest their, challenge. Their, their biggest task is, is a distraction. Uh, <laughs> stay no, off Facebook. Stay off Facebook. No, no, no. I would say uh, probably, especially engineering students, is that uh, through the marvel of computer graphic interfaces, um, some very sophisticated levels of technology is really easy to use. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge that the student has is not to just develop a false sense of security and blindly accept what that technology provides them, but to constantly question it. You know, I, I really agree with my good friend Larry Griffiths, who's... Yes, we all, talked about you, that too. Yeah, mm -hmm. the same topic. And, you know, the, he is a complete advocate of this amazing technology and using it, uh, but you really need to start with some very simple problems, master those, and then go on and tackle your, your really complex ones. You know, just making sure that those students' technology should complement their understanding of behavior, not replace it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what do you think high school students should be thinking about uh, when they're going into engineering, what they're looking for when they're evaluating a university? Well, that's the million-dollar question, especially uh, when parents look at how expensive it is to send a, a kid to school. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess a little bit of um, a background. 
I think a really important thing that the, uh, the high school student, student needs to understand, and maybe even the parents, is no school has a magic wand. Right. In other words, there's no magic potions that this school or that school has that when you come in, suddenly you really comprehend your topics. And so I really want them to know that it takes a lot of hard work to learn these topics no matter where they go. And so they're going to have to study diligently and persistently and, and all of that's the key. I remember a few years back, um, my daughter Sophia, when she was like in eighth grade or I think she, she was young, she had been playing the trumpet forever. She had this opportunity uh, after a concert to spend a few minutes alone with Wynton Marcellus. Like, wow. Yeah, it was really cool. And so off they went and she you know, got to interview him and speak with him. She got and to interview him. It was just him and her for 15 minutes. When it was done, she said, yeah, he gave me a CD and he signed it. And it, it was just so clever. All he wrote was Sophia and then in giant letters with an exclamation point at the end, practice. And, yep. and, and, and that was his point. Even at his level, he just kept telling her, I spent hours upon hours every day practicing. Yeah, because so, he knew that's what it took to get there. Yeah, it, it, there's no magic wand. You, you've got to keep moving. You've got to put the time in. So now you get back to the heart of your question. <laughs> how, how do you pick a, a university? I guess the, the key now is to investigate the schools and trying to sort out what learning opportunities they're going to provide you and try to match them and make them consistent um, or pick a school that these learning opportunities that are being provided are consistent with how that student learns. Right? And we all learn in many different ways. Now I was fortunate, as you indicated earlier, to go to an Ivy League school, but there have been so many great engineers that learn their subject just as well and, and in many cases many much, much better than I ever did. <laughs> and and they were, this was done at schools with a much lesser reputation in facilities. Right? So the key is, is to match the, lear the students' learning needs with the learning opportunities at, at the different schools. And, um, and they will find as they look around, there are a lot of different, different ways to get there. So I understand that your wife, Constance, is also an engineer and a professor at Bucknell. How did you manage to both get positions at the same university? Oh, uh, Constance is a professor of mechanical engineering. And in fact, um, she was the first female full professor at Bucknell's College of Engineering History. Wow. And this is a school that's over 100 years old. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, it's fantastic she was the first, but some might say, hmm, that seems strange. It seems very late in the history it of the does, school. It kind of, yes. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, she set the stage there, and, and that was very exciting. Yeah, we are very fortunate to have found a university in a beautiful part of the country um, that had faculty positions available in both areas of our interests. Timing was key for this to work out. I have to say, it's, it's really awesome to be able to, at all times of the day, discuss our research. Uh, she, her area is very similar to mine, but oh, with a twist of mechanical engineering yeah. involved. And so she's engineering me mechanics, manufacturing, mathematics. Um, so yeah, we have uh, endless conversations about nerdy stuff. <laughs> That's for sure. And it's a blast. It's really fun. So we've talked about what high school students should be thinking about when looking for college and challenges that face engineering students. So what's the best advice you would give to an engineering student that's graduating today? That one's tricky. I would encourage them uh, not to be lured away right into the business world <laughs> to practice engineering. If we were to focus in on structural engineering students, especially those just completing their undergraduate education, um, my best advice would be to 
encourage them in every way to immediately uh, continue on for a graduate degree. Mm -hmm. It is amazing uh, what eight more courses in structural engineering at the graduate level focused on structural engineering, no other distractions, it will have a major and significant impact on their career. Do you remember your favorite professor from your college days? Oh, yeah, yeah. Was it Bill McGuire? Was it Bill McGuire? Well, he was certainly one of my favorite professors. Uh, but I had, you know, honestly, uh, a lot of favorite professors, so whether it be in the courses in art and architecture or my economics courses or even back into the engineering courses. So I had a lot of favorite ones. Uh, but they, they all had one thing uh, in common, and they exuded a full command of the subject matter. Their lectures and their style it was absolutely clear they had not read the night the book the night before, created some notes, and then came in and transcribed those notes on yeah. the board. Their lectures were amazing, and they're often presented in a, in a conversational style. They were very engaging. Um, they allowed time for questions that sparked more in-depth discussion. It was almost like a controlled free-for-all. They knew basically where they needed to get us through the lecture and then just went at it. Uh, they never used notes or overheads, overheads at the time, today, Overhead, PowerPoint, yeah. right? But no, they came in perhaps with a stick of note that said, sometime during this lecture, I need to get through these three topics, and let's see where this goes. And like I said, they knew their subjects inside and out, they were passionate about their subjects, and man, a 50 to 90 minute lecture would just fly by. Fly by. Yeah, it was awesome. What do you hope is the most important thing that your students take away from your classes? I guess I'd get back to this, this fact that, you know, learning takes a lot of hard work. The rewards for understanding what you're talking about will be well worth that effort. It's the equivalent, uh, you know, I try to tell my students, uh, you, all right, you say, I'm going to get in shape, right? See, uh, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go down to the gym. Well, if you went down to the gym and just stood there, <laughs> you know, every <laughs> day. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that worked? And suddenly you go, exactly, you got into shape. Well, that would be pretty amazing. But that's not going to happen. You've got to go down there. You've got to work out. You've got to watch your diet. You've got to do all these other things. And eventually, you get to take advantage of, you know, being, having a healthy lifestyle. So it's the same thing. You will have you know, great rewards in, in being able to you know, complete your engineering efforts because you do know what you're talking about, but it, it doesn't come easy. It comes with a, a lot of work. Um, the second thing uh, I would hope my students would, would come away with is that I've introduced them to the topic, but I've also you know, really whet their appetite, that there's a lot more to be learned here. And uh, man, when you get to graduate school, do this. Or even beyond, once you complete graduate school, don't stop learning. Take these night school courses. You know, uh, keep going because uh, yes, take AISC night yeah. school courses. <laughs> exactly. Yes, please take the night school <laughs> courses. Uh, but any any of these courses, just you know, reading whatever it takes. Um, don't stop learning. You mentioned that you worked at a consulting firm uh, between your master's and PhD programs. Was that a valuable experience? What What did you take away from that? Well, that's a <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I worked as a structural engineer uh, with Stone and Webster Engineering in Boston, and uh, for a few years between my MEng and, and my PhD. And the the one thing that was absolutely clear was that I was destined to be an academic. <laughs> <laughs> so that just reinforced that for you. Absolutely, and they could see it as well. <laughs> and so I couldn't just design a column. Yo, design a column. You know, no, I had to try a whole bunch of different what if scenarios, 
and go to the EJ papers and oh, and say, oh so that's what uh, Joe you're suggesting we do for inelastic buckling all right let me try that and all the different tricks that uh, Springfield and LeMessurier would suggest on calculating K factors I'd be there as well and unfortunately my curiosity and stubbornness always resulted in many more billable hours than the that had been allocated for the project. So it was pretty clear uh, that I was not going to be a great money maker for the company. But, but they were really, they, they didn't fire me or anything like that. It was just sort of, a, kind of a, some pressure to <laughs> get the job done. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand that, you know. But that's good though that you figured out early on it all where, you, where you wanted to be. Yep. So I guess my next question about have you ever considered going back into the consulting world that maybe you just answered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could throw a little more on that. Um, <laughs> no, uh, as you're aware, uh, I really do enjoy uh, being in academia. Um, but I also, and especially being at a school uh, that doesn't have a big research program, but still having research expectations, um, I, I've, so you, you sort of fall into a niche of being a research consultant. And so I've had some great opportunities, whether a professional firm, or you know, an agency like AISC or SGI or something like that will contact me and, and hire me as a consultant to research a project. And I've found that really nice uh, for me intellectually and for them, the, you know, they're always looking for a way to provide a more safe and efficient product. And so it, it's win-win. It's so that is kind of know. consulting work, but you get to delve into the problem instead of just having to churn out a design. Right, and, right. and they always tell me right up front the amount of money, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be more. By the time, you know, with my curiosity, and you take the amount I was paid versus the number of hours I spent, I've never made more than minimum wage. So, <laughs> uh, and I'm, that's why I'm a big advocate of them raising the raising minimum the wage. Raising the minimum wage. <laughs> well, actually, it's going to look even worse for me. But uh, <laughs> that's uh, true. Yeah, going in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. So you chair AISC's Specification Task Committee 10, which is on stability, and you also serve on our Members Task Committee 4. And then you also chair the Structural Stability Research Council. Why is that committee work important to you? Well, I've had some great opportunities there, no doubt about it. Um, I'm no longer the chair of the Structural Stability Research Council. Oh, you're not? I was. Okay. No, now I'm the treasurer. <laughs> oh, now you get the yeah, money. Yeah, now I get to control the which my wife would faint because she, <laughs> she controls the budget in our house. I'd be a complete nightmare there. Um, but I think in sort of describing to people who are interested in joining these committees is that I, I try to you know present them with an analogy and, and it's absolutely true and that is that imagine that you were had the opportunity to join a committee that was going to maintain or rewrite the rules of professional basketball okay, <laughs> okay. So, and um, so you, you know, well should I join this committee so you arrive and you're not sure in walks Michael Jordan Shaq O'Neal all the top names all the Giants in basketball and they're going to participate on this committee. And at first you're like, okay, well, I'm going to be the water boy here. <laughs> you know, you have nowhere near the credentials that these people have. And that's what it's really like to work on these AISC or ASI or SGI or Aluminum Association committees. Um, you have an opportunity to work side by side with some of the most accomplished people in, in the trade. And it's, it's great. It's inspiring. And it, it makes you want to do you know, even more. So people shouldn't be hesitant thinking that they're not accomplished enough because you'll learn from all these people that you oh, get to yeah. be around. Yeah, just the way these people think and approach problems will, will influence you. Yeah, and they should not be intimidated. Uh, of course, 
attending the meetings is not intimidating. You can sit in the background. And, but when you finally ask your first question or go off and do a small study for it and to present these results, the, the first few times it's quite intimidating you know, to have someone like Ted Galambos giving you the stink <laughs> eye as you're trying to convince something that might not be as consistent with his thinking as, as it should be. But, uh, you, know, you look around the room and you're talking about some aspect of stability, and there's Bill Baker, the czar of high-tall, high-rise buildings, looking at you and following your train of thought and agreeing with you, and you're, oh, wow, this, this is great. It's wonderful to be able to work with these really high-end people. The 2016 cycle was your first as chair of TC10. Did you find that to be challenging? Yeah. How I found TC10, became a member of TC10, is part of, part of the picture. In the late 90s, AISC had decided to sort of reorganize the specification. It would come out as the unified specification in 2005. Mm -hmm. And they also took a, a much closer look at how structural stability would be handled. And so in the late 90s, Joe Ura was in charge of putting together TC10. And it was going to be comprised of uh, half the members from SSRC, the Structural Stability Research Council, that I had been very active in, and the other half would be from the AIC side. And so I was lucky enough uh, to be, well, first I, I was interviewed by Joe Yura down in, in Mexico. We were both at a conference together, and he sort of cornered me, and you'd have a beer, and you've got your napkin. And I didn't know where this was all going at the time, but it would eventually lead to passing the test and ending up on TC10. But yeah, oh yeah, we spent a good couple hours there sketching out diagrams on napkins on how <laughs> leading columns worked and everything. And it was a good conversation with Joe, but later I was thinking, was that an interview or was that uh, a <laughs> yeah, good conversation? But it turned out to be a, a, a combination. And so eventually I would join TC10. At that time period, we went through and developed the direct analysis method. So a few of us got very involved with that and did all the background studies and in 2005 it came out in the appendix and then finally in 2010 it came out in, in chapter C. It was pretty interesting when uh, Shankar Nair contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to become the head of the Committee on Specifications. I'm going to leave my position as chair of TC10. Will you do it? And of course, my natural reaction was, was me. And then I said, oh, I know what happened. You went through the list alphabetically. Everyone said Everybody no. Everybody said no. And you got to the Z's. And he, he said, no, no, no. I insist that's not true. But anyway. But one way or the other, yeah, I've, I've had the, uh, the opportunity uh, to chair TC10. And, and I have found it uh, very challenging, yet, yet very rewarding, as with any balloting cycle, there's going to be contentious topics, mm -hmm. and, and there certainly were, were several in our TC10 discussions. And it, it's really tricky, because the difficulty comes when you take on these committees are, are the top people, and you take two of the most respected minds in the industry, and they come at you, or at the committee, with two absolutely opposing ideas on this. And both are absolutely correct. <laughs> so it's not that one's wrong and one's right. They're both correct. Two you, different ways and then what to do you get do? there, and then how do you get there? So, so that was the challenging part: is trying to organize and navigate the members of TC10 to reach a conclusion so we could go forward in a specification, and at the same time not upset the other folks so that everybody quits. So, the, the, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, did you it's have a, anybody quit? No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, a couple of chairs thrown, but uh, no, no, no. No, 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 the, the committee members are, are they're absolute professionals, and they understand that in the spirit of intellectual discourse, a decision has to be made eventually. Now, one of the things I, I should give a shout out to is that um, 
uh, our TC10 uh, technical secretary is AIC's Nancy Gavlin. You know, she's a professional structural engineer, and she did an excellent job in keeping not only TC10 on track, but making sure I stayed on track. So, <laughs> so definitely a shout out for her, and a, and a thank you. So you kind of touched on that there's an, an extension to the direct analysis method that's going to be in the 2016 specification. Are there any other new changes coming up for Chapter C in the spec? No, I would say we probably in the end spent our time looking at that and also discussing the possibilities on how to improve, allow more opportunities in bracing design. So out in Appendix 6, we spent quite a bit of time as well. As with any committee, you also have the researchers both on the committee and outside coming to your committee and presenting new ideas. You see new ideas in the, in the literature. And so uh, always, at least an hour in these meetings, are set aside to that, that those new possibilities. Um, so we do a, you know, a lot of, here's all the possibilities on how we could change the code and then whittle down to the ones we're going to pursue. And even when, once you have new concepts down, then you've got to, you know, they don't just immediately appear on the ballot. Cindy Duncan is quite organized, and <laughs> and she requires us to, you know, not only have the language but the commentary prepared, design examples compared. Uh, ideally, those design examples shouldn't be prepared by the nerdy researcher who developed the concept, but by practicing engineers and how they might interpret them. Yeah. So now you've got all this, and then that has to come back to the committee for evaluation. But I would say those would probably be the two main ones. You're uh, also a member of the Committee on Specifications. So what direction would you like to see the specification take in the next 20 years? That's a good question and a really important one. You know, you look around the room at Committee on Specifications or even on these TCs, and, and you see um, several folks uh, who are in their late 70s or 80s. And I sit there and think to myself, well, I'm you know, 53, and in 30 quick years, I'll be them. You know, what's, what's going to happen to this specification when I look back and I'm their age and hopefully maybe I'll be an emeritus member of the Committee on Specifications. I think the, the one key that I really hope will happen is that the specification and the manual will really embrace the technology that's available. I mean, I, I think about in 1987, uh, 86 during my MEng, Bill McGuire presented us all with the, uh, the Blue Book, the LRFD manual. You know, the world changing manual. That, it was, was that the first one? That was the, the first, first one, blue one. The big blue book. And then, you know, I pick up my 2010 specification. If you look at them, they're two giant chunks of paper <laughs> <laughs> intended to do the, the same thing. There's certainly been a lot of developments, things like the direct analysis and bracing provisions and all of that that have found their way into the new specifications. But the, the material is presented and the way the inter engineer interacts with it, there is no difference. Okay. Right, you know. So I, I guess I, I sort of think of wow. Twenty years from now, I will bet that it won't be presented in a paper format. It will be some type of, you know, web-based interactive uh, specification. You you read the specification provision you know, with a mouse click. You're into the commentary. Another mouse click. You're looking at the references and the specific papers. Another mouse click, you're looking at a, a webinar that somebody gave on the topic, so 15 minutes later you've now understood it, you know, that you've watched a video on it, and then one more mouse click and you're into the design examples. So this, this interactive nature, uh, th that would be really exciting to see. I think another thing 
that is all but going to happen, and maybe we've been saying this forever, these really high-end computer simulations that not only include all the regular effects they currently include, but also include yielding and second-order effects, probably the one thing that is preventing them from just running wild is that it takes time to create the computational model. Why I'm kind of grinning is that with this introduction of BIM, we've got now a single model and if in defining the BIM model you include you know, the loading, of what the possibilities are, the structural geometry, the member sizes, uh, suddenly you, are, you can be running complete nonlinear analysis on that. And so I think 30 years from now, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of those simple design equations, complicated and they're comprehensive, but they're pretty simply presented that are in make up the body of the specification, um, they'll either not be there or it'll be very rare that a structural engineer will be referencing them. Hmm. I think the future structural engineers will be sort of using these high-end packages, these really sophisticated simulations, and asking themselves, all right, they had ever their checklist uh, for that particular column, did I get flexural torsional buckling if it's some weird unsymmetrical shape, did I pick up this effect or that effect. Um, it, it'll feel much more like having the opportunity to go into a physical lab to test your building than to go to a specification and on a component by component basis make sure it works. And so, so I look forward to seeing how the specification adjusts to that technology. Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't wait to see it happen. You're known for your work instability. What would you say is the most important concept for engineers to understand when it comes to stability? I guess the first thing that I would want is that to have an appreciation of structural stability does not mean that you need to be proficient in solving differential equations. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I think many of us who have had a course you know, in structural stability, you started off with the best intentions, you're sitting there listening, and suddenly that faculty member starts writing all these differential equations, and you get lost in the jungle of math, and you lose the big picture of what, why, what impacts structural stability and the like, and you're in the details and trying to solve the problem. Uh, so the, that would be the, the, the first thing I'd want you to know, is if you had a bad experience in your structural stability course, <laughs> and it was because of the mathematics, go back again. And, and not focus on the mathematics, but the, the big picture. I guess as, as an educator, there'd be two things that I really want to emphasize uh, to a practicing engineer when it comes to structural stabilities, and that, that there's two ways uh, to get to a solution. And the first is the traditional method that we all came through, and it dates all the way back to Euler. And that is you treat the stability problem as a bifurcation problem. And by that, what I mean is you load it, you load it, nothing happens, nothing happens. You load it some more, nothing happens. And then suddenly, Bob's your uncle, snap, the building buckles, the column buckles, the flange buckles, whatever. So it's nothing or it's done. You know, mm -hmm. It's instantaneous behavior. That math actually lends itself, that problem lends itself to the differential equations, and that's where people get lost. It provides a perfectly fine solution, but in the end, what we do with that by treating it as a bifurcation problem is we have to back calculate uh, a K factor, an effective length factor, or effective, length, effective width constants, or whatever it is. And in doing so, we get a little lost because that K factor has to represent the structural stability of the system. An accurate calculation of that k-factor uh, requires some serious work. Mm -hmm. And if you invest 
and you get the correct K factor, it's a perfectly acceptable method. If you don't know what you're doing, or you just grab a K factor, or you randomly go to the alignment charts or whatever, and you don't understand all the assumptions related to them and how they need to be modified to account for it, well, you're going to get a bad K factor, and you're going to grossly perhaps miss in calculating the strength of that component or structure. So that's you know the case one, but I'm not opposed to K factors. I just need people to understand when they calculate the K factors or use the K factor approach, they need to get that number correct. The second approach, which I think is a little bit more forgiving, um, and that is to treat the structural stability uh, problem as a as a perturbation problem. So perturbation sounds like a weird word, but all, all perturbation means is that you don't approach it saying that the column is perfectly straight that the load on the column is, is applied right through the centroid. The reality of the situation is, is that column is going to probably have some small amount of initial imperfection. The loading on it, maybe even due to the rigid connections, but even if there are pin connections, are going to create a small amount of eccentricity. So you don't really have a column. What you have is a member that has a lot of axial force in it and some bending. Mm -hmm. okay. And once you have that, as you gradually put the load on, pretty much nothing happens. You know, the column is pretty happy. But as you start to approach an instability, a kind of a cool thing happens, and that is the deflections start growing really quickly. Mm -hmm. So nothing, nothing, nothing. And then all of a sudden, interesting, the deflections are getting bigger and bigger and really big. <laughs> all right, so there's no boom, you know, buckling, but it's a sort of a gradual buckling. And what happens is as those deflections are growing, the moments are growing, you, you're able to you know, identify an instability quite easily. And so that's a really nice way to approach the problem. Uh, is that really what the, di the direct analysis method does? A plus. That exactly, the <laughs> yes, you're the star. Uh, that is the basis for the direct analysis method. So in, in making sure that there is some perturbation, and oftentimes you don't even need to have the imperfection. The frame sways just because the loads are not symmetric, or the frame's mm -hmm. not symmetric. The frame already moves. But we have specific details. Oh, you've got to include a notional load or an imperfection in our, in our specification. But you get a little bit of eccentricity, a little bit of deformation. And when that structure goes to approach an instability, moments taking off, and, and uh, you'll be able to see the, uh, the, the structure getting into significant distress. Um, now, the nice thing about this perturbation approach is you just need to do your work up front in including that imperfection or whatever it is, that eccentricity, and you don't need to then rely on a K factor. Right. And, and that, that's a real nice, uh, so there is no, gosh, did I get the K factor right? You know, you're in church praying, you got your K factor. Right, because cool. everything hinges on that. Every, yeah, on that effective length method, <laughs> that's it. Right? Yeah. On this one, you, you just got to make sure up front you did it, you did it correctly. So, like you said, yeah, this is what the AIC's direct analysis uh, method is based on. So that was a long answer, but the, <laughs> the short answer would be that there are two ways to approach a stability problem. One, the traditional way that most of us came through, and that is treating it as a bifurcation problem. But give that second approach some real consideration. Yeah. I think that's, that's what we found can be a quite an effective way to design uh, steel structures. You received a Special Achievement Award from AISC in 2006 for the innovative development of advanced structural analysis software and for playing a key role in its use to develop the 2005 AISC specification provisions for stability analysis and design of steel structures. 
That is a mouthful. <laughs> so, <laughs> what does your software do, and what made it advanced? So, as I said earlier, I've been working with TC10 and developing the direct analysis method. And one of the things that we found is we went off and we were all to, to give it a try, test our own examples. And we came back into the committee meeting and people started presenting their results. And one by one, they had to go around the room and sort of, all right, what software did we use? Mm -hmm. And to my surprise, you know, it was it was great. They they most of them had used Mastan. You know? oh. I was surprised they had even, but it created a little bit of a problem. Like no one had used any professional, you know, any uh, commercial programs to do this as well. Yeah. Uh, so Mastan was sort of getting some um, view there. But let me tell you a little bit about Mastan and where it came from. In the late uh, '90s, I got a call from Bill McGuire and asked to join Bill. And, and Dick Gallagher, and Dick Gallagher was one of the pioneers in the finite element method. So both of these folks, you know, very well established, older gentlemen, and they were going to rewrite um, their matrix structural analysis book, and they were looking to bring on another author. So I was just completely blown away and honored to, to, to join them in this effort. So away we went, and for, oh, maybe it took about two years. Uh, unfortunately, during that two years, uh, Dick Gallagher would die of cancer, but Bill and I kept moving forward. We completed the book, and it had several new chapters on nonlinear analysis, and we were really pleased. And we sent it out to other universities for review, and we reviewed it ourselves. And we sort of scratched our head and said, yeah, there's this one problem. The reader really wants to do these analyses. They can't really appreciate nonlinear analysis without rolling up their sleeves and doing it. We weren't confident that the reader, that all the readers would have access to the limited amount of commercial code that is out there that could do this. Okay, and, and even those programs might be a little bit more complicated to use than the reader was willing to invest. You know, of course, Abacus or Ansys can solve that problem, but are they really going to sit down and learn Ansys or Abacus to solve the buckling of a simple column right. by nonlinear analysis? So, Bill and I embarked on a journey then uh, to create such a program. And so we were looking to create a very simple graphical user interface that would perform nonlinear analysis, you know, not only the traditional linear elastic analysis, but also include second order effects, include yielding, include all the different possibilities. Now, of course, Bill was older, and so he was delegated as supreme tester, <laughs> and, and I had had some background at Cornell in computer graphics and programming, so off I went in a year of, of work. What would usually happen is I would have my, my day job, <laughs> come home, uh, have dinner, and uh, spend some time with our kids. The kids would be in bed by 8 o'clock, and I would immediately drive to the office. And from about 8.30 to about 1 in the morning, uh, literally straight for a year, uh, I wrote Mastan. And, wow. Uh, and, it, it was, and it's been fun. Um, now, the nice thing about it, and, and you know, no sooner I'd have it complete, I'd drive up, Bill would test it, and he would find a bug. He was <laughs> great at it. And he, and he was a little like, you know, gave me the stink eye here over this. You know, and I'm like, Bill, there comes 20,000 lines of code here. You know? <laughs> yeah, I messed up. All right, give me a break. But anyway, uh, but he was a great partner to work on this effort. And, uh, and so the, the completed software was well received. Uh, it's become much more popular than the textbook that we had worked on. And in fact, um, I actually can monitor uh, the number of downloads. Um, and uh, we just recently approached, or I think we've now exceeded 100,000 downloads of, of Mastan all over the world. Wow. And uh, it's available for free download. And um, recently, the textbook went out of print. 
And so I was able to secure the copyright from our publisher, Wiley, on the textbook, and I've now uploaded the textbook for free download at the MassTan 2 site as well. And I've also included some seri a series of learning modules on how to perform nonlinear analysis. So I think uh, for the engineer who, who wants to explore nonlinear analysis and, and going in that direction, they have an excellent resource, uh, masstan2.com. We'll see you there. I was going to say, where can people find this <laughs> yeah, free download? Yeah. Just uh, mastan2.com. And again, the MASTAN is a, an acronym for Matrix Structural Analysis, okay. which was the title of the book, and the two is for the second edition. Do you update it? Like, are you going to update it? Does it need to be updated for the 2016 spec? Is there anything that'll be different? I continue to, to develop the software. Again, it's a <laughs> it's an expensive proposition. <laughs> simply Back because to that minimum wage yeah. again. <laughs> this one's even worse. <laughs> you give it away. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, so it's a little hard to show 100,000 downloads and not a penny uh, to be made for it. Uh, the nice thing about it is it, it focuses purely on behavior. And so it's not tied to a specification. So when AIC or whatever comes out with a new specification, Mastan is still Mastan. I continue to try to provide you know, new facilities, for example, in calculating the natural period of a structure. It's fun now in Mastan, you can calculate the natural period of the structure um, during an incremental analysis. So you're applying load, the structure is getting in more and more distressed, there's lots of yielding, and at any point in that load history, you can calculate the natural period. So you can see the structure you know, softening and the natural period increasing. So there's a lot of neat educational tools. And of course, the other side of it is that um, you know operating systems, and as you're aware, Windows, <laughs> uh -huh. right, or whatever we call it today, Microsoft's operating system, and and it runs also on the Mac, okay. uh, on the Apple products. Um, the when these operating systems change, I'm usually in for a month or two of reprogramming. So that's when you update is based on the operating system changing, yeah, not really the spec. That's a driver. Is the operating? Yeah, definitely not the spec. Not the spec. And, and then you know sometimes I will get. Um, requests from people um, in academia and say, hey, you know what would be really cool is if you could actually plot the yield surface and see the forces moving out, hitting the yield surface, and then moving around the yield surface. So all these sort of mm -hmm. little, so off I'll go on that. But. So you're known to be an avid runner and cyclist. Uh, has this been a lifelong pursuit? And do you compete? Yeah, uh, my wife and I have, have always been runners. Uh, she's always maintained a healthy running style, and I've always had injuries over the last few oh. years. So about 25 years ago, and actually it started right during my, my PhD program, and McGuire would grumble quite a bit about my time on the bicycle, but I, I converted over to being a cyclist. And because I was a competitor in running, I couldn't wait to compete on the bicycle. And so over the past years, I have competed both as a runner and a cyclist. I have finally stopped competing in both and I'm just enjoying the, the healthy lifestyle of it. But yeah, every morning we're out there working out. I, I guess the, the game changer is, um, it, it, it always happens, but once I was sort of getting like, you know, in your late 40s and you're in a bike race and you're going down a steep hill and you're looking down at your speedometer and you're realizing you're pushing 60 miles per hour and you're looking, okay, we're a pack of 12 riders because cycling is all about drafting. And okay, that person's tire is about one inch from my tire. <laughs> and, and you just know if one person in that group messes up, uh, well, I'm going to miss a lot of AIC committee meetings. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but. We don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> What's the one thing that you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning of your career? 
I guess I'd want to know that it's all going to turn out okay. <laughs> I think I worry too much about the future. You know, I, I really feel fortunate to have a wonderful marriage, great kids, and a fulfilling career that has provided me many professional opportunities to contribute through AISC or a textbook or a software or a steel joist or whatever it is. So if I had known that I was going to get to where I'm at, uh, I'd, be, I'd be okay with that. Not to say that it's at some fantastic level or anything, but uh, you know, I, I think when you're young and you're just starting out, uh, you tend to be nervous that how's this all going to pan out? Am I yeah. making the right decisions or anything mm -hmm. like that? But uh, in the end, uh, everything turns out okay, so just go for it. <laughs> uh, you have two daughters, and I understand one of them chose to go into engineering. What engineering field did she choose? So Constance and I have, have two wonderful daughters. Uh, Sophia is the oldest, and she's looking to benefit the world both biologically or, let's say, medically. Uh, she went to Duke for her BS and Master's and, and studied osteoarthritis. Right? But now she's at Cornell and pursuing a PhD, and again in biomedical engineering. Um, but our other daughter, Marina, she's the artist in the family. Uh, she's quite interesting. She's the youngest. And she's looking to save the world politically. Oh, okay. Medically. So after graduating from Cornell, uh, so she did her undergraduate there, uh, she worked in the real world, which was kind of funny because she grew up in a family of academics. Mm -hmm. and we never had eight to five jobs. We just always worked, but never had to be somewhere at a specific time. So she uh, learned about how difficult that is to work an eight to five job, you know, <laughs> and have two weeks of vacation That's a year. That's always such a hard lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and both Constance and I being faculty, we didn't exactly set the best example on, on a structured lifestyle. But anyway, um, she uh, worked for a nonprofit for a few years in, in public health. And now she's returned to graduate school, and she's studying human rights at the University College London. So she's over wow. in England for a few years. So it's exciting. It is exciting. Uh, you recently took a sabbatical to New Zealand and Australia. Why did you choose those destinations? Yeah, well, first, uh, I highly recommend sabbaticals. Every, everyone <laughs> should have a sabbatical, <laughs> whether you're in academia or not. Just an opportunity to step back and breathe. Um, this particular sabbatical, um, my wife and I were, were real fortunate that we could actually align our sabbaticals, that we weren't taking them at different times. And so we always wanted to visit and study that part of the world. You know, uh, New Zealand and Australia are really amazing places, definitely technically. We went down there and were able to work at institutions, but also socially and the way they approach problems and, you know, my pet peeve and, you know, gun laws and all of that stuff. There are no guns there. And it's an amazing different culture mm -hmm. um, in the way it's very different than the U.S. And it's a, it's a very nice place to visit and I encourage people to go there. Um, so, yeah, many thanks to our, our host. Uh, we were at the University of Canterbury for a while, and then um, an equally great stay over at the University of Sydney. So when you go on sabbatical and you're at these other universities, I mean, do you, are you involved there? It's a mix. They're very kind. They'll set you up with an office and work with you to find housing, and so it works out real well. And the most time, you're working on your own research, but you try to attend and the research meetings of the faculty are hosting you so you can find out you know what it's like again for for Constance and I 
it's it's amazing because we are only at an undergraduate institution. So when we go to one of these R1 schools, uh, we get to sit in on research meetings where the level of conversation is incredible between PhD students and these faculty members. You know, this is at a scale as you would expect right, at a much different level than conversing with undergraduates. Mm -hmm. So so intellectually, it's fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like it. If you weren't involved in the engineering industry, what other profession do you think you would have liked? That's a good question. I, I guess I maybe a math teacher. Okay, and I'm not sure. <laughs> that's maybe not that's that much clue. Different. Yeah, I know. That's really not that different. I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I, I wish I could say, you know, an artist or a poet, but all of my skills in that area are just terrible. So, uh, maybe a rock star, but I can't sing. Oh, okay. You know, isn't that like a oh. requirement? And I can't no, play any instruments. That is not a requirement to be a rock star. A lot of them can't really sing. They can't. <laughs> oh, you said that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I can't play any instruments, so maybe, uh, yeah, so definitely my rocks. I have the moves, but I can't. Oh, yeah, see, so, now maybe that's yeah. all you need. I, I think one of the things that, and, um, is I see subjects like math, and even the topics that I teach, like um, you know, computer analysis and these amazing programs like SAP 2000 and Strand 7 and Reza and all the other ones out there. When it comes to these topics, what I really enjoy doing with the students, you know, and, and, like I said, even with math, is showing them how do you get a solution? It's almost like you're the lead magician and you take these students together who are studying magic and you show them how the tricks are done, you know? <laughs> and they're sitting there, oh, that's so cool, that's how you cut the body in half. I always wondered how they did that. Yeah, you're showing you know? them behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. And so, whether it be, you know, using numerical methods to solve really complicated math problems, or showing the students what, how does these sophisticated commercial programs actually get the answer? You know, is there a wizard in the background, or you know, how do they get there? Showing them that, ooh, cool, that's how you get the answer. So I, I really enjoy that. Enjoy so that you were just stuff. meant to be a teacher. Yeah, something to do with education. You know, um, our school does an outreach program over at the elementary school, and we go over and we have a bridge day. It, it's pretty close to ASC's steel day, so we try to combine all these topics in one. <laughs> but we work with first graders. You know, some of the kids are inside building popsicle stick bridges. Others are outside building the steel bridge that we competed with a few years back, and we've got it all secret. And the, all the kids have hard hats on. They're all tiny with their glasses. And, <laughs> And man, I, that is just so enjoyable to work with kids that age that haven't been influenced by all the negative thinking. They, you know, they're just anything's possible, and they understand that. Yeah, if they study hard, they they can anything's possible. You know, so it's it's exciting. Who inspires you? Generally speaking, the people who inspire me the most are those that, despite all the obstacles that life throws at them, they continue to strive to make a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, they. Uh, they just have a don't quit attitude that just inspires me. And for example, my wife is a great example. Despite the many obstacles that's been placed in her path, you know, as a woman engineer, you're quite aware that many of them are gender bias against professional women's daily activities. You endure and you move on and you keep up the energy and desire to fight for principle and strive for what is right. And that inspires me. You know. It seems when I look at my career, uh, everything's been dropped in my lap, you know, and I've had opportunities and I've been able to, you know, achieve the opportunities and contribute to them, but I've never been up against the wall and had, you know, just because of my gender or my race or anything like that, been faced with already negativity. I haven't even said a word and you're already judging me, you know, and that is 
very difficult. So those folks who, um, despite that, still strive to make a difference and, and fight for what's right, that to me is very impressive. I guess um, to get other possibilities, certainly my parents inspired me. My mom was a, um, was a teacher's aide, uh, so education was always in the family. But my dad, you know, maybe he wasn't the best student in high school, so he was immediately military-bound and was in the Coast Guard. And then finally, uh, sometime when I was in junior high, returned into private sector, left military, and he just came in as an electronics person, not as an engineer. He sort of hit the restart button and he went to night school and the long road to getting a BS degree and I think we graduated. He got his BS degree and I think I got my high school diploma at the same time. Oh, that's neat. And then he went on and got his master's in electrical engineering and I think when he got his master's in electrical engineering, I graduated the same year with my BS in engineering. So. You know, so th that was inspiring. That is you know, inspiring. You know, every night, as, as far as I can remember, there was no option of watching TV. You know, if your parents are sitting at the kitchen table doing their own homework, <laughs> yeah, you got no excuses why you shouldn't be doing your homework at the same time. Yeah, no uh, complaining. Yeah, no complaining. You know, I just worked eight hours in the shop. Now I'm going to night school. You know, so I, I think that was quite inspiring. Mm -hmm. And I guess you know, to bring it closer to home, you know, my colleagues are in AISC, AISI, Steel. An aluminum Association. The members of these design committees really inspire me to do my best. I mean, these committee members, I mean, they really know their stuff. So if you're going to make a contribution, you better bring your A-game. You've done a variety of things in your career, both in academia in terms of your contributions to the profession. Of what are you most proud? Well, probably this podcast interview. <laughs> 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 no. I get that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I would say, um, you know, probably a few things come to mind, but to, to, just to keep it brief, um, one of them is certainly um, taking the knowledge that uh, Professor McGuire and I had developed during my PhD program in those studies that we had completed way back in the late 80s, and we knew we had something there that could change steel design. Bill tried in the early 90s with an AISC committee, but it still wasn't quite there yet. In fact, I can remember as a PhD student pretty early on, Bill saying, listen, um, we're going in a new direction with this applying nonlinear analysis to design steel bridges and buildings, and it's kind of interesting. I'm going to bring a few of my AISC buddies over to up to Cornell, and let's have a chat with them. So can you prepare some things? And so I walk in, and I'm thinking, okay, who's that person? Oh, hello, I'm Joe Ure. And I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> man, Joe Ure, Captain K-Factor. <laughs> and then, hi, I'm Wi-Fi Chen. Oh, my God, Chen and Asuda, all the Chen books. This is a legendary Chen and nonlinear analysis. Uh, Jerry Heyer, uh, AISC uh, top person. And they just kept coming in. Ted Galambos was <laughs> there, Mr. Stability. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, Bill's got some pretty good connections here, right? Yeah, these but are the heavy hitters. <laughs> these are the heavy hitters. And at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, now I'm going to present my research, and this is kind of out there on what we might do. And so we presented it. They were into it. They had a small group, uh, but the timing was just not right. It sort of requires you to think about ultimate limit states. Uh, ultimate strength limit states. And uh, LRFD had been introduced in 87 and it wasn't quite there yet. So we would sit and continue to try and make the difference, write papers on the topics. Other people, and like at Sydney and the Don Whites at, at, at Purdue and eventually Don's down at Georgia Tech, would also con 
continue to look at this topic. But it wasn't uh, until finally, sometime around 2006, 2007, AIC put an ad hoc uh, committee together to look at the work that it had done. And it was just really, I was really proud to see that the work that Professor McGuire and I had developed in the late 80s actually found its way into being the, the content of Appendix 1 in the 2010 I see specifications. So it took a long time to it, get that, there. That did take a long time. But, but. Uh, and um, Bill was very old at the time. By the time everything came out in print, 2011, I would think that Bill was certainly in his late 80s, if not early 90s. I remember I drove up and and he was just like, "This is awesome!" And I, so I just I literally had him sign my manual, the specification, right there. And so it's one of my little cherishes because uh, I did the grunt work, but Bill was a big contributor to the, to the concept. So that would be the one. The second one, and this was a significant undertaking. At some point, Ted Galambos uh, decided that he wasn't going to be the editor. He had done it for two sessions of the SSSRC's Guide to the Stability Design Criteria for Metal Structures. And by some miracle, I received the opportunity to be the editor for the new edition. Over a period of several years, I worked with a group of about 40 experts in structural stability in all different areas of structural stability, each of them contributing you know, texts and photos and whatever they had in many different ways. And we also had the fifth edition. So as the editor, I killed myself to pull this all together. And sometime in 2010, out came the 1,100-page the sixth edition to the guide. It was great for me, and I'm very proud of that. It, it was really a neat opportunity to work with all of these great minds in structural stability. So mm -hmm. those would be certainly the two. Those are big things yeah. to be remembered for. Thank you. Well, I think those are all my questions for you today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's It's been great uh, speaking with you. Yeah, I'm thinking that your, your audience... It's probably going to be pretty much limited to my mom, and hopefully, <laughs> and hopefully she'll listen to the whole thing. But maybe my daughters, uh, maybe my wife. But uh, anyway, well, no, it's been a great pleasure, and I, and I hope I provided some insight that was of value. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISE continuing education opportunities, visit us on the web at AISE.org slash webinars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.